Welcome to Between the Covers, interviews about books with the people who write them, here on KBU Portland 90.7 FM. I'm Avi Marr, your host this week. Fiction and essay writer Mary Helen Stefaniak grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and has lived for many years in Iowa City, Iowa, with her family. Her work has appeared in the Iowa Review, Epic, the Yale Review, Agni, and the Antioch Review, and in several anthologies. Her novels include The Caliphs of Baghdad, Georgia, The Turk and My Mother, and her most recent novel, published this year, The World of Pondside. Also published this year is her most recent book, the six-minute memoir, 55 short essays on life. Author Valerie Lakin says of the six-minute memoir, these brief beguiling essays turn ordinary moments into extraordinary delights and take you along on the wild and bumbling adventures of a writer so witty and wise, you will miss her like a dear friend when you close the book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Mary Helen Stefaniak. Thank you, Avi. I'm happy to be here. One of the things I'm excited about is to get to talk about your two recent books in combination and how they relate to each other. So to start, I'd like to read a quote. The Kalamazoo Gazette calls your short, short story collection self-storage, a place where the familiar world is both funnier and sadder than it seems. And I thought that was an apt description of what makes <clears throat> your voice unique, the combination of tenderness and hilarity in your writing. So if we could start talking about the six-minute memoir, can you talk about how you came to start writing these little jewel-sized essays? Sure. Now, there is um, uh, a kind of introductory essay at the beginning of the book that explains in some detail how I came to start writing them. But just to give you the short version, um, I uh, was invited to write a monthly column by a magazine uh, called The Iowa Source. And I still write them once in a while, but not on a monthly basis. Uh, and um, at the time I was working on my first novel and I thought, plus I was teaching full time at Creighton University, I thought, no way can I write a column. Uh, but somehow or another, I thought I'd give it a try. And it turned out to be the best thing for many, many reasons. Surprisingly, it turned out to be very good for the novel that I was working on. It made it easier to be uh, patient with the novel because it gave me this, uh, you know, sense of closure and satisfaction. Uh, not only seeing it in print, which actually was very scary to start with, but um uh, just the sense of having finished something. It, it makes you able to, it's sort of like, you know, you get to, you have to hold your breath for a long time, but then you get to breathe for a while. <laughs> then you can hold your breath longer again. So uh, it just turned out to be a great thing. I'm grateful to the editor whose name is Claudia Miller. Um, could we hear part of one of the essays, Saturdays with Sarah? Sh sure. Um, now, you know that the essays are, hmm, Let's see. Uh, you know, just kind of things that they all start with something. They mostly all start with something I jotted down in a notebook. Um, and uh, so not, you know, necessarily a whole story. But this is about uh, Sarah, my uh, dear friend, 
who uh, to whom the book, the world of Ponsai, the novel that we'll talk about, is dedicated. And Sarah had um, ALS. And if you're not familiar with ALS, the essay will sort of make you familiar with what happens when you have it. And in the end, uh, you die. And so, uh, um, and Sarah, I have to also tell you, was a member of the Porridge Club, which was our little swimming club. We had a group of ladies. We ranged in age from 40 to almost 80. And we swam for exercise. And on Saturdays, we swam at the same time so that we could go out for breakfast afterward and have uh, porridge, which is what Sarah understood to be or what we ha- we learned that was the real word for oatmeal. There's something about swimmers, I guess. Having known Sarah, we know how to live with the worst possible physical limitations, how to lose the ability to do one thing after another, swimming a lap, eating a meal, making a phone call, without ever giving up who we are, without ever letting go of life. You could also say, although no one likes to use the word, that Sarah taught us how to die. Here, as far as I can tell, is how you do it. You just keep on living till the end. You don't become a hero. You don't become a saint or a paragon of wisdom, although, in a sense, Sarah was all those things. You stay who you are. The things that annoy you, lukewarm coffee, throwing away recyclables, silverware in the wrong drawers, still annoy you. The things that make you laugh, like your pair of hefty cats, those solid citizens, still make you laugh. You dream of chocolate. You refuse to be confined by your wheelchair. You take your daily constitutional in the jogger, an adult-sized stroller, also known as the Saramobile, often rolling down to the river. You feed the ducks, On Sunday, you go out to West Branch Friends Church, where I'm sure you take a moment to remind God that you're still here, still Sarah, that you're trying hard not to feel buried alive lately, and you could use a little help with that. God, it would seem, comes through for you. So do the friends who line up to chat with you after meeting and sign up in great numbers to bring you soup and other forms of sustenance. You go to town meetings and political rallies. You get your picture in the paper, chumming it up with the candidate who happens to be Bill Bradley. You greet the admiring public in Happy Hollow Park at the start and finish of the PALS 5K run that you and your sons have organized to fight the disease that you never give in to, no matter what it takes away. You go to New Zealand with those two fine sons. You see them swim with the dolphins. You accept no visitors when Mystery or Masterpiece Theater is on. Your friends take you to concerts and plays. You forgive them when they can't figure out that you need your glasses to see the stage. When you have something to say, you say it, no matter how long it takes to adjust the switch on the dynamite so that the smallest pressure from your knee will select the right row, then the right letter, to build one word, then another, until your sentence is ready to be spoken. You sound like Stephen Hawking. Often the conversation has moved on without you, but you forgive your friends for speaking so fluently. At Porridge Club, when you ask for some quiche and the little machine voice says, may I please try the quiche? You laugh. You play it again. Later, you ask only to smell the quiche and the chocolate cheesecake. 
and you forgive your friends for eating them. It gets harder and harder to raise your eyebrows for yes, but you try your best to do it anyway. When others misunderstand, you forgive them. Sometimes you weep with frustration. When your friends can't tell if you're laughing or crying, you forgive them. When you want to give somebody a good swift kick, you forgive yourself. You forgive, but you don't give in. You hold out for what you want, what you need. There's still so much to enjoy after all, so much to be thankful for. You can still light up with pleasure when the children across the street come by to say hello or sing a song or show you something. When you're rolling down Broad Street toward the sunset and the river, you can still feel the wind caressing your face. When someone gets you settled just right in a chair or wheels you past a crowd of crocuses or holds a sprig of lilac to your nose. When Zeb the cat leaps into your lap, when your son sits down to read or watch TV where you can feast your eyes on him, at those times, you're still amazed to be in a world that has such beauty in it. The truth is, Sarah, you did not teach us how to live or die with a catastrophic illness. You taught us simply how to live. So beautiful. So this will be a two-parter. Um, what I loved in the essay was the persistence of the person being who they are through the ravages of disease and how that was a lesson about living and dying. Um, it feels like a theme in your work and here you say it directly to the reader and it feels important in, in your writing to assert each person's personhood, their interior life, their wishes and their quirks, especially when age or disease might make them be viewed as more two-dimensional. Does that feel accurate for the what you want to do in your fiction and your essays? Yes, yes. I hate to quote, um, uh, well, mm, I'm going to quote AARP, <laughs> which has a whole, <laughs> they have, they have uh, um, a program, it's actually for young people, to help the young people see older people as multidimensional individuals. So that's what we're after here. We're after making everybody a multidimensional individual. I mean, that's that's the whole point. And I always think that we could, you know, we could use that too. When we see kids playing beer pong, do we really see those young people as multidimensional individuals? It goes both ways. Good point. So my second question is, is Sarah part of the inspiration in the world of Ponside for Robert? He's such a remarkable forbearance and humor and generosity. Um, was that part of what your friend Sarah showed? Oh, yes, yes. I would never have written uh, Robert as a character at all. I couldn't have written Robert as a character at all if I hadn't been so close to Sarah and um, throughout her three years of dealing with this uh, illness. So, yes, you. Are, although Robert, you know, is not Sarah. Robert is a very different character. And, you know, um, uh, he has a, maybe more of a, a little more of a need for control than Sarah does. Sarah found it uh, possible. I don't know how easy she found it to be because she was quite a forceful person, um, you know, in her own right. Uh, she um, she seemed to find uh, things to appreciate enough 
so that she could um, relinquish control of things she had previously had control of. And that was always hard, but she could do it. Robert is not as as good um, at doing that. Mm. Yeah, that will fold into a question later about uh, how the book concludes, but mm-hmm. I'll back to it. It's one of the lovely elements of World of Pondside, and I was hoping you could speak to this. It is such a danger to make characters in a setting like a nursing home, to make them either campy or two-dimensional, but you make their inner lives as rich and conflicted as all characters deserve. Do you think it's a reflection of your view of how, like in this case, older people might be discounted or not taken as fully fleshed out people with their own agency? Yes, yes. I, if you, you know, to use a um, fancier uh, words, to use the fancy word agency, which you just used, that's what I thought. I thought, you know, you have to restore agency to these folks, even if their only agency is their thought processes or where they're looking or whatever it is. Now, the the older characters, there are like two characters in the world of Pondside who are point of view characters who are the resident, who are residents. There's Laverne Slatchek and there's also Mary McIntyre. Um, but Mary McIntyre is um, uh, not always aware of where she is, which means Mary McIntyre often takes us someplace else. <laughs> She's one of our escapes from the nursing home uh, because she is often somewhere else uh, in her um, own consciousness. But uh, yes, that that was um, that's what I want to do. That's why I like the the metaphor. You haven't you haven't mentioned the game yet that they're playing a video game and that they've been shut out of the video game and that a big part of the mystery is to figure out what's going on there. I like this metaphor of they're trying to get back in the game. And I also like it that the young people who are also playing the game, the staff members, you know, the administrator, and undoubtedly others who we don't, you know, live through, they also are trying to get back in the game. One reason I mentioned the, the you know, focus on trying to recognize people who are different from you as multidimensional individuals, and in this case, who are different from you in age above all and capacity. Uh, one reason that becomes important in the book, it made it necessary for me, it made me want to take the young care people very seriously as well. So that, you know, if you ask me, the two main characters in the book are Laverne, who's going on 86, a resident, and Foster, uh, a young man of about 26, who dropped out of high school and who works mostly cleaning up uh, in the kitchen. Uh, and they, they too, they're they both are in a, 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 like all of us, in a tricky position in life. Could you read from the beginning of the world of Pondside? The beginning of all mystery stories has to involve finding uh, the body. So that's what we have. And then, um, although we also get introduced to one of the two main characters, Foster Kreswick, who's a uh, young man who works in the kitchen. The other main uh, character is uh, Laverne Slatchek who is an um, 85 going on 86 year old resident of Pondside. So I'm just going to read. uh, And so she starts off with chapter one. Laverne Slotchek had been hiding in her room since breakfast. Not that she had eaten any. Who could eat breakfast with all those red and blue lights zooming along the walls in the dining room and the food service people gawking at the windows, blocking her view instead of feeding Screamin' Jeannie and the others who moaned more quietly but could not feed themselves? 
Laverne had gotten a few glimpses of police cars, an ambulance, a fire truck. They always sent a fire truck just in case. She asked a staff member what was going on, but the girl didn't seem to know anything. Or if she did, she wasn't talking. Laverne had given up on getting any more coffee. She removed her clothing protector, which was actually a towel-sized bib, and hot-footed it down the hall toward the library, where she found Dwayne Locke's speech already hunched over the computer in the corner. After cursing her luck loud enough to make Dwayne's shoulders twitch, Laverne had taken a left out of the library and scooted down Hawkeye Lane toward her room. All the hallways in Pondside Manor had street names. Laverne's room was in Boysenberry Boulevard, which was home to residents who were independently mobile, mostly continent, and fully aware of their circumstances. The last of these characteristics is what made Boysenberry Boulevard the quietest and arguably the saddest hallway in Pondside Manor. Laverne had been living in room 2021B for two years now, ever since her son Joseph and his wife moved away to a western suburb of Chicago. Joseph couldn't bear to think of Laverne rattling around in her two-bedroom condo with no one in town to replace light bulbs or to take up the throw rugs she persisted in scattering all over her floors despite the well-documented trip hazard they afforded. Laverne had held out in her condo until one day she tripped, as predicted, on one of the rugs and broke something. Fortunately, your arm and not your hip, exclaimed Joseph's wife, whose name Laverne had only recently begun to forget for hours at a time. The arm, which was broken in two places, required a brief hospital stay, followed by a lengthy period of rehabilitation, and it was a far, far simpler thing to check into Pondside Manor, where physical therapy was available daily on site, than to arrange pickup and delivery via bionic bus. Somehow, Laverne's slow but measurable progress in squeezing foam balls and reaching for the ceiling had stretched to fill the up to 100 days of skilled nursing care fully covered by her Medicare plan. She was just about to go private pay, an inheritance-guzzling prospect that had her son and daughter-in-law talking in low tones about turning their garage into a mother-in-law flat, when a stroke knocked out her right field of vision and, more importantly from a financial standpoint, put her back in the hospital for three fully covered weeks of acute care and rehabilitation. The hospital sent her Oh, the hospital stay set her 100-day skilled nursing clock back to day one. One of the masterful aspects of the novel is how you evoke place. The setting is so vivid. And I was asking myself, how did she do that? And the authenticity of Laverne's voice introducing the world and the visual sense of the nursing home struck me as how you delivered all that information and opened the world to the reader. Um, how did those characters come to be, uh, to populate your novel? Oh, well, Laverne is, Laverne is kind of a composite of a lot of old ladies I know and um, am trying to become you know, the novel came, I couldn't have written the novel if my mother hadn't spent some time in a nursing home, uh, and uh, as she did, although she was not much like Laverne. Uh, she was more like uh, Mary McIntyre. 
<laughs> another um, point of view character in the novel. So we have like two characters, two characters through whose eyes we see, you know, the action we see the in whose consciousnesses we dwell, uh, who are residences, I mean, residents of uh, the nursing home. And Laverne is, is one of them. And I mean, I think you, if you just, um, you know, Zadie Smith says that the novelist's impulse is to leap into another person's life, which is totally different from writing about somebody or a play, writing about a place. So you leap into her life and essentially you kind of become her and you take the reader with you. And you don't have to do it in the first person either. You just have to be in her consciousness. And so, you know, people don't live in sort of gray spaces where they don't notice what's going on around them. You know, they live in a visceral sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you stay inside of Laverne, you're going to see that world the way she does. And so that's that's kind of what I try to do there. And Foster is another character who uh, is based on um, an encounter with a real person um, I don't know if you want me to tell that story or not. Well, I'm going to ask about Foster in a little bit. Okay. Um, but I wanted to stay with Laverne for a second, if that's okay. She's such a great introduction, not only to an age, but also to a moment in life where shifting from being an independent, autonomous person into losing that losing that autonomy. Can you say more about building that perspective while you were writing her? You know, in a sense, I think that my experiences with with Sarah, uh, who we talked about before, there's, you know, a, a, a loss of a, a autonomy that's really big time, you know, bigger than Laverne's, bigger even than, you know, most uh, a person who has a stroke um, in m- many cases. I don't know. I think it's just part of the leaping into the person's life. And if you, if there are these constraints in their lives, you know, if they're using a walker, which she kind of thinks of as a rolling handrail, uh, the, um, then the walker is there, you know, and, and you have to give her a way of thinking about it, which is, she thinks of it as a rolling handrail that she doesn't really need, but it's convenient to use. That's, uh, I think by paying attention to what the person whose life you leaped into is seeing and hearing and feeling. You get both the setting and this, uh, whatever level of autonomy they have or don't have, it just comes out. You know, you don't have to think about mm-hmm. presenting it really. You just, you're inside of it. I think that's why I think, uh, I mean, you're inside of it as a writer. And of course you take the reader with you. I mean, you might have to work very hard to make the pages such that they do take the reader with you, but that's what you're working on when you write a novel. Mm-hmm. So just to move back and forth, I'd like to hop back to the six-minute memoir. There's several essays in it where you show us in your life with your great aunts and some good times and hard times with your mother um, in her older age. Can you talk about your family when you were growing up in the Midwest? Was your family and older relatives a big part of your life? Yes, and actually not just older relatives, but also older people in the neighborhood. I mean, there were in, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, um, I was very fond of a lady I, I referred to as Grandma Karis. I don't know whose grandma she was. She wasn't mine. But uh, we um, I visited Grandma Karis a lot. And um, even later, when I was uh, um, a young woman and, and had uh, children of my own, I gravitated toward 
old older people. And I do do have my father is uh, or was um you know 16 years younger than his next sibling. They were, you know, the the Aunt Madeline was born in the old country and my father was born in the US and so there was this big gap um in the, that period. In fact, there was the World War 1 in that period. So his you know, his sister to whom he was very close was almost felt more like his mother, you know, at the at, because she was old enough to be one. In fact, she had a son who was a little older than my father. But we won't go there right now. And then, you know, I there were there were all yeah cousins from the old country that were all kind of of Aunt Madeline's or a uh, generation. Mm. And so I I just you know you love being around these people, uh, and they they talked a little funny, and you love that too, you know. And so uh, they made unusual food for you to eat. It was just you know it was great. And then on my mother's side, you had all these great aunts who might write about in the six minute memoir. Um, and my mother, in a sense, something similar happened to her so that her older relatives became the family. My mother's father and mother died of unrelated causes. Her mother in childbirth and her father probably of a stroke about six months later. No, like a month later uh, when my mother was 11 years old. So my mother was raised by her grandmother, along with the other kids. And so when we would go to Georgia to visit my mother's relatives, we stayed with a person I referred to as grandma, but she was my great-grandmother. And I'd, of course, never met my grandmother, not on my mother's side. So, and she was, and her children were all of those great aunts, you know, So, because she was the grandma, so there were all the great, and there were also innumerable cousins my own age in Georgia, which we didn't have up in uh, Milwaukee in relation to the the uh, my dad's family, his immigrant family. There were lots of lots of cousins in in Georgia, so we liked to go there, and we went there every year. And so that I guess that kind of that kind of explains it. You were surrounded by older people, and they were nice to you, you know. So what's not to like? Well, it's it's a really sweet thing to hear that you actually have a real life model for both being taken seriously as someone much younger than a lot of the people around you and that you were woven into the fabric of a family where there were these really big uh, gaps in years that people were close across. I mean, you had it sounds like you had a real wide ranging interior model for what you were writing in, in the novel. It's really sweet to hear. So if I can pivot a little bit, um, you've said in uh, The World of Pondside came to you as an idea for a novel when your mom was recovering from her stroke. And you talked about how much she dreaded being there a little bit. And I was wondering if that played into this amazing decision you made to find this channel, this video game that was a way of speaking to inventing a way that characters could play out where they wished and when they wished they were, as opposed to where they are right now. Where and when did that idea of bringing a video game as a way of carrying all these kind of existential questions, how did that come into into being? See, the short answer is I don't remember exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But but, um, the, uh, but you know, I mean, I have, children and grandchildren now and they play a lot of video games so they're around right they're around you all the time i did uh, partly it was the attraction of the metaphor of getting back in the game 
And it, a big part of it was looking for something, anything that would allow the young people in the story and the old people in the story to be on the same quest, essentially, you know, to be trying to get back in the game. What else could there be? They're all, there's trying to figure out what happened to Robert. And it isn't really a spoiler to know that Robert is the body that's found in the pond at the beginning. The, and he's the creator of the, the video game, a man with ALS, as opposed to an older guy. There's, you know, trying to find out what happens to Robert is one thing, but there needs to be this more kind of concrete thing, I think, for, uh, and it's kind of odd to think of a video game as concrete, but, <laughs> but it is uh, for for them. And the fact that it's all kind of personalized for them, um, it, it makes it... Uh, I just liked the idea too, you know, as part of of old people playing a video game, which they do, uh, you know. <laughs> and uh, that was another way to bring the the two, the old and the young, together. But it mostly was needing to give them a quest they could all be on, and that was it. Let's get back in the game. Well, I was really taken by one of the questions I saw on your website about this this idea because it does it brings up this idea of memory and imagination. Right. And and so I wanted to sort of flip and ask you the question, do you think imagination or memory is more important? Oh, that's the question, huh? Yeah, you asked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Imagination. Hands down. Easy answer. Yeah. Uh, imagination is more important. And and sometimes I, I have thoughts about that. Uh, and I try to, you know, I'm kind of using it in the novel somewhat. But I feel as though we are very possessive about our memories, you know, very possessive. I, I mean, I should talk. I, like I say, I write things down in a notebook, but I mostly kind of write things down that I think I could use. And of course, most of them you don't. But just by writing them down, you, you know, you get in the habit of looking at the details and finding some words to put them in. I mean, it's just good exercise. It's like playing scales, I suppose, you know, for a pianist or something. If you're just joining us, our guest today is fiction and essay writer, Mary Helen Stefaniak. So I like what you're saying about we're so possessive about memory. Can you say more about that? Well, you know, we feel as though when a person loses their memories, they're not that same person anymore. And there are philosophers who, who say that. And I... Uh, I mean, in a way, I don't care if they're that same person or not. I mean, the whole continuity of a human being's consciousness is kind of a fiction anyway, you know, so it's made up as you go along, you know, and some parts you hang on to and some parts you don't. I just, I don't believe, I believe whoever they are is part of whatever they are at the moment, you know, and what they're feeling and what they're longing for. So that's why it's so easy for me to answer the question about that and there there's a funny thing in a way the 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 portals that everyone has their own portal and and none of them are just purely memory in fact some of them aren't memory at all they're totally you know fabricated but they're you know you take some moment from your past and you uh um make it better you know and it's a moment in your it's a moment either in your past or in your imagination that when you kind of felt you were someone you enjoyed being you know or or you maybe this is who you felt you really are mm. you know there's a moment in your life where you feel this is where i really am and all the rest of it is 
I don't know, just comes from there. Uh, and I do the same thing, actually, in my first novel, The Turk and My Mother, but with the afterlife. You're, when, you, when you die, the first thing you need to do is, is forgive everyone. And the next thing you need to do is go through, like your life passing before you, you know, go through your whole life and find the moment when you were most truly who you are. And that's not necessarily a good moment. It's it it bestows punishment on those who deserve it and who, who uh which I I mean who that's who they are, you know. Or maybe they'll be happy, you know, being whatever dastardly, you know, thing person they were. But in any case, you find the moment when you were most truly who you are, because we spend so much of our lives being not who we truly are, you know, putting on one role or another, um, and uh kind of grinding through it. You know, but there's sometimes so 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 the portals are very much like the moment the 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 time in the afterlife that you know the character there uh, ends up in it, and she's an old lady too. I mean, all of my novels are full of old ladies. <laughs> well, one of the things that's so beautiful about the portals is that you get to let the characters answer for themselves. When is their moment they wanted to be? And who's there and what's different and how imagination changes it from what it actually was into mm-hmm. sort of a more wish fulfillment place. It's such a fantastic device in the book. I, I absolutely loved it. I did wonder about one of the choices that you made was to keep the game kind of old school. You know, they have all these fancy VR equipment in the real world, but you had, they had to use their imagination. They just had a mouse and a computer. So they stayed grounded in this world while they were imagining this other world. How did you decide to keep that, keep them so much in place in this kind of old school way? Well, I mean, for one thing, you know, technologically, they're not going to, you can't put uh, I mean, well, I guess you can put VR virtual reality goggles on somebody in a nursing home, but you'd better stay in the room with them, you know. So that would have been a dangerous thing. The other thing is, I I have to say, I don't like the idea of virtual reality because it eliminates the need for imagination. The whole point of virtual ima- uh, reality is to f- trick your visual system into seeing what isn't there, and all of the um, uh, uh, at least that's what the goggles do. And all of the feelings are things that you're, you you produce in response to what the machine has tricked you into thinking that you see, <laughs> or I guess you are seeing it in a sense. Yeah. But um, I wanted this to be, I think most games, that's not how they work. You know, you you have to bring a certain amount of imagination into them. And the more advanced technologically they are, yeah, the less imagination is uh, required in many cases. I don't know that I, that, that that's true, um, you know, totally across the board. But it's but, a really interesting social comment you're making about it. It takes less actual effort and and are creating anything. It just gets spoon fed to you, even your in your visual system. Here's you just are here and your body will respond as if you are there and you don't have any creativity in that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you have the you don't have any creativity in, in producing the situation. No, I mean, I imagine you you can you're still responding uh, um, yeah. to, to something. You know, so there you don't give up autonomy completely, but it's autonomy. You don't give up autonomy, but you give up you give up the need for imagination. You just really do. 
There's another essay in the six-minute memoir called Booking It. That's all about how uh, the big tr- the big challenge in creating virtual reality was to trick the visual system, right? And not to have it be pixelated, not to have a screen and all that. And then I comment that has anyone noticed that books do that? You know, with, <laughs> they trick you into thinking you're somewhere else and you don't, and you already have the software to do it because you know how to read. <laughs> well said. Right. Um, another thing I love about your work, um, one review of the six minute memoir said that it reminds us to take solace and joy from the mundane, because in the end, it's all we have in this life. And it seems like a great description of the characters in Pondside, the way that they're all struggling. And in some ways, they take solace in each other or extend a hand to each other, dealing with something very different from themselves. How do you see your characters coming together in the book, and in this, I'm especially thinking about Foster. This is our return back to Foster. His interactions with the residents. Like, do we see him as our protagonist? Uh, yeah, Foster's the protagonist, I would say. I, 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 you know, it's Laverne, maybe Laverne also, but Foster's number one, really. And uh, and the book does begin with him. And he's got the biggest, you know, it's, I also like the fact that he's got the biggest problems, you know, he's the young guy and good health and everything, but he's the one who's most unhappy, you know, and and with huge chips on his shoulder, you know, that are weighing him down. And, the you know, this interaction with Robert, first of all, helps turn him into a more um, uh, a human being who doesn't necessarily assume that it's him against the world. And also his interactions with the, you know, the people at the nursing home, whom he refers to as geezers. But he works harder for everybody, like the way he is about Mary McIntyre and the changing of the diet. You know, he's very passionately mm-hmm. advocating for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by helping Robert create the video game. You know, he does he does most of the work, actually. So yeah. he does. Uh, do you think his kind of outsiderness, Foster's outsiderness, I mean, he's very alone in the world, is part of his efforts to connect with the uh, with the residents even though he calls them geezers yeah well sure i mean they're he doesn't have a he doesn't have a family and he doesn't have a family or friends outside of this place so this is his place you know and uh, this is where he's going to connect with people um and of course he's not going to do it in a you know uh hallmark greeting card kind of way you know he's a pretty uh sour kind of character but and then they bring him you know you see how robert and and the old people the needs of the old people the needs of robert and the gifts that the old people and robert give him of attention of valuing what he does that's that's everything that makes him able to be a you know a human being who can who can love right instead of being just alone and angry yeah just to tie the outsiderness back to a little biographical time, one of the things I know about you is that you attended the Iowa Writers Workshop in 1982, and right. you were a mom with three little kids. You were pretty unusual among your peers at that time, right? Yes, I was. <laughs> what was it like to be there then? Like, I don't picture another young mother in that in that uh, world of of literary study no i well i was just gonna say actually the second my in my second year an, another woman came who had two 
uh, small children somewhere along the line. But yeah, I was very much an anomaly. And I didn't, we also didn't have any money. I realized later that it was the 1982, that was the last big recession. That was the last, since, I mean, between the 1930s and to the present day, that was the big recession. Well, you know, I didn't read the newspaper too much in those days. I didn't know. So my husband and I left our jobs <laughs> and went, and, and John found a job. I was a high school teacher, so I quit my job. And John was a, oh, he had a lot of skills for working in a laboratory. So he found a job in a research lab. We didn't just come here with no jobs and live on the street. He had a job, but it was, uh, our kids were seven and four and one and a half. It was uh, a crazy thing to do that we didn't realize how crazy it was. And we also thought if we don't like it, we'll just go home because we we uh, we owned prop. We were building a real estate empire. We had two duplexes, one of which we lost completely as a result <laughs> and the other of which we managed to hold on to and sell eventually when we because now we're still in I'm in Iowa City now. So my husband found a job that, that he loved the second year we were here. And that's why we are still here 40, 40 years later. Uh, I had no, I thought I was going home to Milwaukee after two years. And 40 years later, I'm still here. And my kids grew up here. It was a great place for them to grow up. Excellent public schools. But I, I, um, I don't know, I just didn't get to hang out with people. You know, I mean, people hung out and they went, you know, they drank, they drank coffee and they went to the bookstore and they, they hung out they and all I had time to do, especially the first year, all I had time to do, there was, there was a two hour workshop. That was one class once a week. And then there was one other class you had to take, you know, like another two or three hour class. And so we couldn't afford childcare. So my husband managed to, you know, make it work so that he could be home for those classes. But that was it. You know, and I did, I was able to go out if I wanted to, to the, the bar where everyone went out after, after workshops. So once a week I could hang out if I wanted to, but mostly they were, they were all living lives so different from mine. I mean, I had three kids in a station wagon, you know, I, nobody had that. Nobody had that three kids in a station wagon. Uh, yeah. I was just thinking of it as the not that that was necessarily the beginning of your writer life, but that's what I was picturing is you as, you know, it's such an, such a, um, in such a different place while you're getting started into your serious, you know, in a very serious yeah. place, getting started into your writing life. Like I was wondering about what was the impact of that? Not that I didn't make any friends. I did. Some who are still friends to this day, you know, you, you know, you find your people there are many ways in which you can relate to people. It doesn't always have to be that your life looks similar to their life. You know, so. so in another way, the it, there's kind of a spooky question within the world of Pondside that there's this liminal space where um, you're here, but you're not here. Like Robert being at the game, in the game with completely different abilities, other players being able to be with lost loved ones. Is it replacing being here, this kind of, imagined world in social media where there's these curated selves interacting with other curated selves when the folks are locked out of the game and they get so upset that's what it reminded me of of like mm -hmm. they need to be in this virtual space they can't just be where they are do you see social media having that impact on people or what's your take on it social media to me uh yeah i'm talking about games rather than you know 
Facebook or Twitter or anything, because that's a whole different story. And yeah, I think certainly there's um, there's a danger in kind of going over into the virtual reality and not, you know, living in in uh, your real your real reality. But um, well, for one thing, it's like Foss, it's like Robert says, you know, who needs an alternate reality more than people who live in a nursing home? I mean, why do they need to be condemned to living in the nursing home? Because that's where they really are. And actually, I encountered some of that. A lot of that comes, my attitude toward that comes from a social worker at the nursing home that where my mother was. My mother had, was a little, you know, she was kind of confused. And she she had, like like Laverne, she had lost her right field of vision, and she couldn't remember that she had lost her right field of vision. At least Laverne knew it, you know, and because she didn't have any memory uh, loss of that sort. And my mother had volunteered at a nursing home not long before this. All She had been doing it for many, many years, and she was doing it at the time she had the, I mean, she didn't have the stroke at the nursing home, but, you know, it was the same epic of her life. She had, it, it was it suddenly ended, this epic of her life. And the thing was, there was a person, I don't, maybe it wasn't the social worker. There was somebody who kept referring to it as a nursing home, that here you are in the nursing home. And I thought, you know, the sign out front says blah, 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 rehabilitation and did not say nursing home. So why, if nursing home sends my mother into despair, why use that term? And and they someone said to me, well, you know, they have to recognize where they are. And I thought, <laughs> why do they have to recognize where they are? Why can't they imagine they're wherever they want to be? And in a sense, the game gives them the opportunity to do that. Actually, not in a sense. The game definitely gives them that opportunity to do that without being brand, uh, branded a problem. Somebody who needs to be you know, made aware of where they really are. I don't know. I think, uh, I think the person who is having the best time in the story is Mary McIntyre because she can go wherever she wants, you know. <laughs> and she still interacts, you know, she incorporates it, the dancing, she incorporates dancing with the CNA, you know, uh, in the real world into where she imagines she is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's, I think, boy, that'd be a great way to end up. Mm -hmm. I like it. Did researching and learning for the book change what you do with tech? Uh Actually, not too much, although I, um, uh, we know, of course, that I took some computer science classes and I got a certificate in game design <laughs> and I played lots of different kinds of video games. First with my sons, my daughter's not too interested in them and neither daughter, uh, although my daughter's mother-in-law is, so I had her. <laughs> and then also... Um, then eventually my grandchildren, to whom I who I introduced to the computer, uh, not to games so much as just to the use of the computer, because then everything about the computer is a game. Our faces here, you know, this is part of the game. I, you know, I have a fairly friendly attitude toward, I don't know, digital reality, but I also uh, am not, I don't enjoy being in it all that much. And it's partly just because I'm really bad at it. You know, my poor grandson trying to get me to use use the joystick in a way that will actually take my character where I want them to be instead of <laughs> over the cliff, you know, and my characters are always going over the cliff. And, you know, it drives them crazy. And I say, well, I don't have enough practice. I don't have one of these at home. 
<laughs> and uh, so I, I, that's why I, it's probably I don't like it that much because I'm not good at it. Mm-hmm. Probably. <laughs> and also, I don't like the violent ones I, because I don't enjoy that in any form. I don't like a violent movie. I don't like, you know, violent games. Well, I thought uh, a good way to sort of um, end would be to hear one um, last bit from the six-minute memoir. I thought it's such a great final look at the sort of joy you bring into your exploring things, like what you were just saying about your friendly attitude towards technology. Could you read from page 227? Sure. Although we do kind of don't think we have to give them a little bit of background that uh, my home in Iowa City was Stagecoach Inn that had only been owned by a couple of families. And it had the the last member of the previous family, which was the second, we're like the third family to own it, even though it was built in uh, the first part of it was built in 1857. So it's been here a long time. And at that time, you if you wanted to go west from Iowa City, you had to take the stagecoach. The train came in to Iowa City, and that's where it ended, at least this particular area. So we were, and it's just in a wonderful setting. I wish I could take everybody around. We're really like in a woods, but also by a, there's a bluff, there was a quarry, and so there's all this gorgeous limestone outcroppings, and there, that's my yard, you know, and it's in the city. It's not out in the country. It's like you, you people are astonished. They they can't really find the archway into the draw to take the drive up, and it's not a long drive. It's you know, it's not like you're going through down some long, you know. I mean, it's you go in, you turn the, you go around a curve, and you think, whoa, this is all back here. And that was why we bought the house because we were in love with this setting. And I also loved the house except for the way it smelled. And it, the last woman who lived here, you know, had the proverbial 50 cats and she was not well and they were in charge and the house was their litter box and we had to tear the whole inside of the house out. I mean, our kids thought we were nuts. Our friends were worried about us because we were like maybe in our 50s when we decided to do this. And uh, they helped a little. The kids helped as well. I mean, some they, they helped a little. They helped a lot. But this project was so big that even a lot of help ended up being a little. That's what these, uh, there are five essays in a series, which I did month by month, called Hysterical Preservation, um, which were about buying this house. Many people went through this house and nobody made an offer on it. Not one soul except us. Well, <laughs> because it's, it's a really nice uh, commentary on you as a writer. That's why I liked it is, is you taking, taking it on and having a friendly attitude toward let, let let's get to know this. Let's, let's leap into this life. So let's leap I, into this morass, of, right, yes. this morass of impossibility. <laughs> So uh, anyway, also there was, because there's a bluff and the guy, one of the people, the family was, they were ice merchants, they were brewers and ice merchants. And so they had ice caves and, uh, you know, to store things in, uh, in the summer. And so uh, there was a cave on the premises. John, the cave was, you know, if, if there had been nothing here, but the cave, my husband would have wanted to buy it. So, and at this time I was teaching in Omaha this is like in 2005, 2004, 2005. And my husband was living and working in Iowa City and we were getting together on the weekends and working on this house. 
this is from the first, right? This is, we haven't bought it yet. <laughs> or um, time for John to start the semester at the University of Iowa and for me to start spending weekdays in Omaha, where I had been teaching for the last eight years at Creighton University. In Omaha, I was fighting for the time and space to work on the Caliph's novel while I prepared and taught my classes and went to meetings and compiled the massive magnum opus they call a tenure application. In Iowa City, John was still visiting the house. I found the cave, he said, when he called me one night. It's big. I can stand up in it. So in August, we ran up our phone minutes discussing offers and counter offers at all times of the day. The sellers believed that the historical value of the house made it worth a great deal more than we could possibly afford to pay for it, given the cost of making it fully habitable again. In the end, the condition of the place worked in our favor. A lot of potential buyers and history buffs looked at the place, but we were the only ones to make an offer. I guess everybody else was scared off by the eye-watering smell and the water feature in the basement. Although he proceeded boldly, even my husband admitted to feeling a little nervous at times about what we were daring to undertake. Not me, though. Maybe it's a side effect of my endless struggle to be a writer, some kind of collateral courage I've developed in other areas. But taking on the res renovation of a 150-year-old former saloon and stagecoach inn didn't scare me at all. From where I sat, saving that old house, as huge a project as it would be, worrying about it, spending every weekend helping John scrape and paint the exterior, prying up the hardwood floors, putting on our masks to tear out lath and smelly plaster, deciding what we could afford to do and what to give up and how to pay for it all. This looked to me like the easiest thing I'd do all day. As my friend Judine's mother used to say whenever I said things like that, live and learn. Well, it's been a joy to talk to you, Mary Helen. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. Well, you're welcome, Avi, and thank you for um, for your time as well, and uh, for the time you spent reading my my books and talking about them. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Between the Covers here on Caden Portland. 90.7 FM with musical help from John Bechtel. If you'd like to hear a longer version of this interview, head to kboo.org and thanks for listening. <laughs>